Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Our guest this week is originally from Westchester County, New York, which is part of the unceded territory of the Moonsee subtribe of the Lenape, which originally constituted one of the three great divisions of that nation and dwelled along the upper portion of the Delaware River, the Minnesink, and the adjacent countries in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. From their principal totem, they were frequently called the Wolf Tribe of the Lenape. Presently, those who kept the name of Moonsee were in three bands in the early 20th century in Canada and United States. The Stockbridge Moonsee community is a federally recognized tribe in Wisconsin. They have always maintained a connection to their Eastern homelands and tribal members have continuously returned since the 1850s to protect burial sites and cultural areas and to pursue land claims. In 1999, this work was formalized by establishing a Tribal Historic Preservation Committee. The office carries out duties under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act to repatriate cultural items and Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act to consult on federal construction projects that may impact cultural sites. In 2011, the tribe purchased 63 acres of lead along the Hudson River to protect a culturally sensitive site. In 2015, they formally established a satellite historic preservation office on the campus of Russell Sage College in downtown Troy, New York on Mohican homelands. The office reviews approximately 500 proposed construction projects a year, ensuring the tribe's cultural perspective is heard in the planning process. They also contract with anthropologists to monitor sensitive projects. If you'd like to support their efforts, please visit our website for the link. In this first full episode of 2022, I chat with the filmmaker and activist Emma Frances Snyder about her Oscar shortlisted short, Takeover. We talk about her personal journey as a white person and the obligation to uncover and celebrate those hidden histories and all things Takeover including the history of the Young Lords and her many interactions with journalists and Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez. This week's episode has not one, but two songs. First, the resistant anthem Palante by Hurry for the Riff Raff and Que Bonita Bandera by Pepe y Flora, which celebrates all things Puerto Rican. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in January, 2022. All right, well, let's start off with some visual descriptions. I am Tony, and I am a brown-skinned Black woman. I am sitting in my home. I have a burgundy t-shirt on, as well as a burgundy bonnet, because it is in the morning on the West Coast. Um, I have Black headphones, and I am sitting in front of a Black couch, and there's a uh, turquoise curtain to my right. Um, Emma. My name is Emma. Uh, I'm a white lady. I'm wearing, um, I'm at a low angle at my mom's house with basically all white walls wearing a burgundy hoodie. So we're matching. And you can see um, a tiny bit of a vacuum cleaner to my right behind me. They clean in her house, y'all. <laughs> we, at least we like to pretend we are. <laughs> Give the illusion. We first met at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in 2020, um, when the world was still normal. I was a coach for those of you who are participating in the Big Sky Big Pitch 
it was incredible. There's so many great projects. Well, and let me, I just want to like sing the praises of Big Sky, first of all. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Big Sky is a documentary focused film festival that happens in Missoula, Montana. And the executive director is Rachel Gregg with two G's. And she is amazing and phenomenal to work with as well as the staff. I miss it. I miss like going to the snow. And so many great filmmakers actually participate in the pitch, either pitching their feature projects, but they also um, have opportunities for people with shorts and then the industry events as well, in addition to screening films in the festival. And a lot of phenomenal films that go on to great recognition start there. And, I, and yours was one of them. That is so sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah, I also want to sing the praises of Big Sky. Uh, wonderful people. I love Montana. I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful place. So being being in the mountains was really lovely. And it was the last kind of normal thing I did industry-wise mm -hmm. before COVID. It holds like a really special place in my heart because of that as well. Yeah, I was pitching with a lot of phenomenal filmmakers. I mean, one of which pitched uh beba yes right? beba like, uh, yes uh, rebecca hunt yeah i haven't seen it yet but you know i've only heard fantastic things it looks beautiful so i was really lucky to be in that cohort i actually so takeover was supposed to be a feature which is why i was pitching right then 2020 hit the world flipped upside down and we you know went into the edit and we're just like we don't know if we'll get to raise the rest of the money for a feature. And I think we just need to like go into it with an open mind and we did and here we are. We're definitely gonna go into that. Like at what point did you decide, okay, we're gonna make this feature a short and just the logistics of it. But um, it seems like just reading your bio that documentary has always been a force in your life. In your bio, you wrote how you saw spike leaves when the levees broke. And that inspired you to take action. So tell us about your time in New Orleans. So funny because like looking back on it, I can make the connection, but at the time I wasn't thinking about it, you know? And so I've always been somewhat activisty. And I remember in 2008, when I watched When the Levees Broke, there were the San Diego wildfires happening at the same time. And a lot of those people were rich and white. And New Orleans was still, I don't think people really realize or maybe know how bad things were still in New Orleans in 2008, just three years after Katrina. So I decided to volunteer there to rebuild houses for three weeks. And after being there for like a week, I decided that that was like where I needed to be. And I just like dropped, <laughs> dropped out of school and moved to New Orleans and ended up staying for a year uh, rebuilding houses with the uh, St. Bernard project, which has actually gone on to continue supporting different places that have been hit by uh, hurricanes, like Hurricane Sandy in the Rockaways. They, they, they're rebuilding there now um, or were when that happened. So yeah, so that's kind of. So are they kind of like a habitat for humanity, but primarily focusing on places that have been impacted by natural disasters or disasters caused by climate change? I started volunteering with Habitat for Humanity and I found that they weren't actually finishing houses. They were kind of building a lot of different structures, but then weren't 
finishing them. And St. Bernard okay. Project was known for finishing the houses and paying a small stipend to their volunteers. And so that's actually, you know, at the time why I decided to uh, start working with St. Bernard. And it was actually in like the Bayou 40 minutes outside of New Orleans, which is where I ended up living for like a year. All right. And so when you left New Orleans, you went back to New York. Oh, let me ask you, this. are you from New York? Is that where you were born and raised? Yeah. So I'm from Westchester. So just outside of the city, outside of Manhattan. I actually ended up traveling around the U.S. for like two years after living in New Orleans. I ended up actually living in Maui for about a year. And at that point, I was like, I think I was like 23 or 24 and I was ready to go back to school. And so think that I just kind of moved back home and applied to Brooklyn College and I think a few other a few other schools and it just made the most sense I received the most financial aid from the state um, just a little tidbit if you're over 24 or over the state actually gives you more financial aid when you go back to finish your undergrad degrees so and then that was in 2012 which was a huge year in New York and activism and awakening. Could you actually talk more about that? Because for many of us, 2012 was a long time ago. So what, what was happening in New York? It is, it is 10 years ago. So um, in 2012, Occupy Wall Street happened. You know, a, a number of organizations had been talking about it and they decided to occupy, well, what was, they then changed to One Liberty Plaza and it kind of changed, I don't know, it changed a number of people's lives, I think. Like they were really, you know, a lot of people had been deeply affected by the 2008 recession and there were a number of people that were really struggling and it was like a beautiful place for everyone to come together. I learned about consensus, like the process of that general assemblies, like facilitation. And I was at school at the time. And so like I started organizing with Occupy Wall Street and doing outreach. And then, you know, as a student, I was like, you know, it's making a lot more sense for me to just connect with the student movement. And there were already, there was already an organization called the Brooklyn College Student Union. And, you know, I joined that and we were organizing primarily around the tuition hikes, which ended up going through, unfortunately, but so they were raising tuition, cutting funding and spying on Muslims and NYPD was spying on Muslim students on Brooklyn College's campus. And so those were like, I remember the three primary things that we were protesting against and we organized with a number of other CUNYs and students across New York City. So we had a CUNY contingent with which comprised of the CUNY Graduate Center, Medgar Evers, and I think Queens College, as well as Brooklyn, and like a few people from Staten Island. And then we were working with the new school, NYU. Um, and so we had this like New York City student general assembly, and we were all organizing around access to quality education at the time. So it was really, I mean, it was really, I look back and I like just think how grateful I am that I was organizing and around at that time because it really changed again changed the course of my life having moved to New Orleans no but it's just really um fascinating because like hearing you talk about that moment in 2012 like I, I I've never really heard it articulate like that but like it was a huge moment 
you know, because I mean, this is where we get terms like the 99%, you know, and the 1%, like all of that came from Occupy Wall Street. And that's in like our lexicon to this day. Exactly. You know? And it's like, you don't even think about it, you know, and even uh, the film Not Going Quietly, Addie Barkin, Takeover and Not Going Quietly had like a crossover where we had um, a conversation with Addie Barkin and uh, Juan Gonzalez and Denise Oliver Velez. And he said that he was radicalized then. And that's when he became, so there's like so many people that we don't even necessarily know about that. Like it just changed their life and the way that they think about the United States and accessibility and quality to like accessibility, like everything. And like, you know, having been part of it, you don't really think about it. Like living during those times, you know, which is odd to think about, particularly as a, well, I'm 50. I consider myself a young person. That is now history, you know, and and these are things that are written or want to be part of the history books so and then at that point like just a number of things kind of came together so like I lost my health insurance because I aged out of being on my parents insurance I like found myself you know feeling really comfortable speaking but then like maybe being like these like maybe I need to like step back though that was one of the main conversations at the time like step up step back but so and so I started filming what we were doing and that is kind of how this whole thing came together um, or how I be- got involved in filmmaking was through feeling like maybe my place was better to just documenting what was going on and what we were doing and not being the one of the primary people kind of speaking about it. Because I, like I did, I'm a white person that grew up in Westchester with like, you know, financial stability and like these, while these issues were affecting me, there are other people that are disproportionately affected by capitalism. And so maybe the idea is that I like step back. We attempted to take over the president's office and did, were not that successful. There were a lot of police officers, two students got arrested on CUNY campus, Brooklyn College. One of our professors uh, resigned because they didn't drop the charges. Like it happened on May 2nd, 2012. It was a really intense moment and I kind of even felt like I I needed to learn more. I was like, I need to learn more about successful modes of direct action because what I just was part of an experience was pretty traumatic. Like, and that was just one action, you know? I mean, I'd been part of other protests, but this was like us like taking it to the next level and not having succeeded. Um, and so I started studying with Jean Theo Harris, the civil rights and the black power movement. And I came across the young Lords and was completely blown away by the fact that a, I was like organizing based on like their models, you know, and I didn't even realize it, you know, and this was like, they were doing this in the seventies. Right. So they're so ahead of their time. The young Lords, the black Panthers changed the landscape of healthcare, organizing everything. <laughs> In the United States, and like it's just like not enough people are aware of this, especially white people. So I, I wrote this paper about the Young Lords' contribution to public health and the idea that public institutions are created for the people, and if the government or the state is not servicing the people, they therefore have a right to take them over because they belong to us, right? And so that was the concept of the paper. Like, and so at the time I was interning for Out in the Night, which is a film about Black gay women who were defending themselves in the West Village and ended up going to prison for four to seven years for self-defense. They were accused of being a gang and violent and just like the language that was used 
was obviously very racist saying that like four women went to prison for four to seven years for defending themselves against somebody that was assaulting them. Because I mean, there's this, um, I think unwritten law or, or that women in general, whether cases like that, it's like hate crimes related to homophobia or domestic violence, are, we do not have the right to self-defense. The Daily News, I would argue, and the judge accused them of being a gang and Daily News used like just- Derogatory language. Awful. And just like rob them of like their dignity, like as human beings in a way that I still to this day, I'm just disgusted with. So I was working on that film as an intern and Juan Gonzalez had agreed to sign his book, Harvest of the Empire. So those of you who haven't read that, essentially it is about colonialism and capitalism in quote unquote Latin America. And it's a phenomenal book. And he had agreed to sign his book for their Kickstarter. So I, being the intern, was sent to go get his signature. And so I brought my paper and I was like, you know, I think you're great. Like, I, I would love to interview you. You know, uh, like I, I, um, I wrote this paper about the Young Lords and I, you know, I'd really love to interview you. Like, here it is. Let me know what you think. And like a week later, he got back to me. He was like, yeah, you can totally interview me. And like, Oh my God. It was my first, the first interview I ever conducted, like as a documentarian was in the Democracy Now! studios. Like my. <gasps> <laughs> That's like sacred ground. <laughs> and that was in 2014. And then just like through word of mouth, I mean, he was like, you know who you should talk to about this? You should talk to Mickey and Cleo. And so like, and then through word of mouth, that is kind of how I started the film. For those people who don't know, like I know about the Young Lords because like over my many years of listening and watching Democracy Now, you know, Juan Gonzalez has like mentioned it at times, you know, but just like, just kind of like a, a casual reference, but it wasn't until like I met you at Big Sky and, you know, we were talking about your movie and I was like, he has not been tooting his horn in that aspect. And I also want to say that I'm a huge like fan of Democracy Now. I've been listening to that show since, no, since 1998, I think. Actually, I was living in Atlanta and I went to visit a friend of mine in Florida, in Tampa, Florida. And she says, you got to listen to the show. It is like on station, this amazing progressive radio station, WMNF um, in Tampa, Florida. And so when I got back to Atlanta, I was listening to it online. This is like in the baby years of the internet. Yeah, when I moved to Florida, I just became a regular listener and a regular contributor. And then when I moved to Arizona, there's like no progressive radio station there. So I listened online and then I still listen to Democracy Now! Uh, like every morning. And it was so funny like because when you were on the show, I didn't even know you were going to be on the show. But I, you know, I like when I wake up, I just like click on like I take start taking my vitamins and then I put on my Democracy Now! app. I usually just listen. And then I heard your name. I was like, oh, my God. And then I, I turned on the video so I could watch it. I was like, she's doing so great. Did you see my face? It's just like, yes. Yeah, you, were, you were amazing. And I was like so excited and so proud of you. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Like Amy Goodman, Juan Gonzalez. I mean, they're at this point, I, I fully agree with you. They are kind of the only news source I can even stand to listen to. These Amen. Days. Yeah. Genuine. Like they get to the heart of it and tell it like this. Tell us kind of like a little bit about The Young Lord. The Young Lord started as a street gang in Chicago that got radicalized by the Black Panthers, specifically Fred Hampton. 
At the same time, there was a group of students, Puerto Rican young people in New York City who would read the Black Panther Party paper, read about this new group, this Puerto Rican organization called the Young Lords. And so they drove to Chicago, got the approval of like the leader of that organization to start a chapter in New York City. And that is how the Young Lords okay. came to be. Tell us how old Juan Gonzalez and his like colleagues were. I mean, they, they were babies. So the median age was 17. I think the youngest I've heard is 12 to 14. And, you know, the oldest was like 23. So very young. I mean, that's, that's the, the whole thing is like, the youth will save us because they're, hmm. they're so, they're not scared of anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're fearless. They're yeah. fearless. Yeah, exactly. And, and they're smart, you know, so that's, um, but at the time they were like, you know, very young. They started in a New York chapter on July 26, 1969, which was the celebration of the Cuban revolution. So that's kind of the date that is solidified. You know, it's funny because when I was talking to Mickey in his interview, he was like, they were all like ready. They went back to like the people in the neighborhood. They were like, fuck the police. You know, we're going to, you know, like Marxism, socialism, let's go. And everyone they spoke to was like, I don't really know what you're talking about, but there's garbage everywhere. And they realized that the issues, and this also stems into like the health issues and why they were so focused on health. Um, and I, I do want to say that they had a number of, uh, they had like 13 point program, decolonization, free education, uh, equality for women, you know, um, free healthcare for all, free food, like, you know, very, like, those are just a few of the things. But um, one of the sectors that they were so successful in it was organizing around healthcare and their mode or access to quality healthcare. And their mode was to reveal a problem while creating a solution at the same time. And so by the time yeah. city reporters or the cops would show up, no one could fault them because they were just doing good things for their community that the state and the city should have already been doing. And they were really successful. They were part of the passing of anti-lead-based paint legislation that we all benefit from in New York City. From the film, um, you see the Patient Bill of Rights, translators in hospitals, um, a new hospital, which is kind of the Lincoln Hospital, which is the focus of Takeover. But you know, I was just like blown away by their success, the way they organized, and how much they got done in such a short period of time. Knowing myself, how hard it is to do that, you know. Do that, do that work to make, actually to make change happen. 100%. And I think that was, and I think a number of people during the Occupy Wall Street movement and a number of us really did come up against how hard it is to create institutional change and move institutions. I don't even know if, you know, the conversation is always about dismantling, but even just moving, you know, in the direction that you wanted to go. And so that was why I focused on them. It was my reckoning with U.S. history as a white person and having, you know, I grew up in a pretty progressive, you know, white enclave out in the suburbs. The civil rights were chill, but when it came to like the Black Power mm -hmm. movement, that was too far. And so like my understanding of that totally shifted once I started studying this and I was like oh my god I have been lied to and everyone has been lied to you know and it was like 
it was a real moment for me because I grew up with like pretty, I mean, I, I mean, at this point, I think my parents are pretty radical, but I grew up with pretty leftist parents. My mom is also from England and where they have free healthcare. Right. So that was something that I grew up like and free education. And obviously that has changed now, but they still have the national health. They do. They do. Is the NIH, National Institute Uh, of Health? uh, NHS. Yeah. NHS. Okay. And it's not as good as it used to be. And education is not, it's not fully free there anymore. And it's because of this model of privatization that the U S has been pushing for years. I mean, forever inception. So, but that's a whole other story. So for me, takeover and my understanding of U S history and like the idea of who our heroes are, who we should be honoring and what the truth of our history is like our shared history and that's just like this tiny contribution through takeover was that because I was really well many things appealed to me when we were going over your pitch was first of all I'm always attracted to stories that I didn't know that I didn't know about before but also this is a story that has like impacted all our lives. Like we have changes in our healthcare system because of these people, but we don't even know who they are. Basically these unsung people who have done things that we, in the history that, that we have benefited from, that we actually consider the norm in some ways that I feel like have always been there. Like these are the people who like took the, the steps to make, make it happen. So I've always loved films that like celebrate people who have not been celebrated. Another thing that, stood out for me was like, I feel like from what our discussions about your pitch and the project was that this was essentially where our concept, U.S. concept of like universal healthcare, the idea came. Because like you talked, you mentioned before the patient's bill of rights. That's something that a lot of us know about and we think is standard and has always been there, but not the case. It was because of these like group of like very young Latinx folks like back in the day. And then another thing that was like, I love your reenactments and we're going to get into that later. Mm-hmm. Those like those, cause those were hella cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just remember like seeing them. And I was like, oh my God, like where'd she get this amazing archival footage? She's like, oh no, those are reenactments. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, but we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I'm always like a huge fan of Juan Gonzalez. So I was totally fangirling. So, always. I know. Yeah, Same. Yeah. But I mean, but this is also one thing that you um, talk about in your bio, which like, I feel like you live by this and you embody this. It's like, you want to tell positive stories of resistance and collective you wrote collective successes mm-hmm. because I feel like so many times when we're doing these, you know, fights for justice, a lot of them feel like sometimes we feel like we're like doing it for the first time. Like I think what Takeover, what your film Takeover shows, as well as films like Crip Camp shows, that there have always been people before us who have fought these fights that we could actually learn from we can learn from and like build on what they build versus like trying to like reinvent the will well we are living in very different times now you know that was the 70s this is 2020 i did create something that is how to take over and that's like that those are the questions i asked i was like how did you do it tell me about it i want to (laughs) know for my own knowledge and share that right because it's like how do you do something like this? You know, like how does one do this in a way that, you know, is successful? And I think that, and that's the, one of the biggest things, like as a white person, understanding the history of struggle and how I have benefited from that, right? So like uh, affirmative action, white women benefited greatly from that, 
you know, and so we have been able to go to college, like more so than probably before that was put in place. And so the idea is that like, we are different, we have differences, we come from different places. But there are things that have happened throughout US history that have benefited all of us. And I think that that is so important to acknowledge, knowing that we have, we have all benefited from these things, how people of color, white people, different people from different socioeconomic classes have worked together, how we can continue to do this and support each other through the struggles that we are going through right now. You know, and I think that is like one of the biggest things that I am constantly interested in learning and wanting to share through that process, you know, of, and through filmmaking is like that, that seems to be the place that I came to that felt, felt, well, I mean, it kind of goes back to the, to when the levees broke, like that changed my life, like that hands down, that changed my life media. And as an activist, I was like, you know, I think that media has the potential to really do this, really help create change. And that is where, that is the, why I went in that direction, especially now with film, you know, so few people are reading these days, including myself. I can't even call anyone out like that. Like, I just like, I'm not reading enough. We are dealing with so much all the time. It's hard to like, it's hard to take a moment and just like sit and read, but it is such, it benefits us all. So that was kind of the idea of, of the coming together of everything was like, I think that media is the way to do this. And I can't watch any more sad stories. Like I know, I know, we know what we're up against. We know what we're up against. Like people have been saying the same shit for years. How do we have a different conversation that addresses the same thing where it's like, we know what we need and this is how we get it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm kind of over the, been over the sad story dots and films. What I want is, okay, what can I do to make a change? Particularly if it's like an issue that I don't, I don't know about and it's new to me, I'm like, okay, like tell me the problem. Okay, and but also I need to know what I can do. Because otherwise I just leave feeling like angry. And uh, of course, like I can like, you know, that's something I could research, you know, on, on my own. But actually, I think that's something I've done with films that I've seen in the past that just like made me angry and sad. I'm like, okay, I'll do that deep dive to figure out, okay, like what is my role in this? How can I make this change? But, I'll, but also like it, I have great appreciation for films that take on that role as, as well. Because particularly as a filmmaker, you know, you've been um, embedded in uh, in the work for so long, like you have so much knowledge of it, like share that and share the knowledge of the potential change that can happen. Um, you talked a little bit why you decided to shift from a feature because it was originally going to be a feature and, um, and but you changed it to a short. Um, but also I feel like when I met you, you could like correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I feel like you've been working on the project for a long time and you just, felt like you knew you had your story. I've gotten the sense that you have been with it so long and like there had been like not much movement. You were just kind of like in a, maybe a place of discouragement, which I mean, a lot of filmmakers get there. You were 100% correct. I was at a place where I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like I just can't keep hitting, running up against the same walls. Cause you know, at a certain point, if you've been working on a film 
I started it in 2013, 2014, and I really devoted, I, you know, I, I stopped working on other films. I took day jobs and really devoted myself to it in 2017. It was actually fortunate to, to meet and begin working with Tony Gerber and Lynn Nottage of uh, Market Road Films. And that's when I kind of feel like it really started. And then at, when we met was at the beginning of 2020, when we had gotten money, we had gotten some money, but you know, I was realizing, I was like, I don't know if we're gonna, and this is something that, you know, I really credit Tony with as having, you know, a lot more experience in the industry. I mean, the thing, the thing is, is that we were at this point where it's like, I, we've been knocking on the same doors. Doesn't seem like we're going anywhere. It doesn't seem like we're getting further. And then COVID hit and it was like, this may be the only money we ever get again. So it's just like, and kind of the stars aligned. I'd been talking to Francisco Bello for since 2017 for years. And I had been like keeping him in, keeping in touch with him. He's a phenomenal editor, you know, has done major archival films and just like an extraordinarily lovely person. So, you know, we had been talking for years and kind of everything came together in March, 2020, like very beginning, you know, we had enough money or we didn't have enough, but we had money to, to like afford the, to go into the edit. We were in this place where let's kind of have Francisco look over it and let us know if he, like, let's be, let's be open. And, you know, this is a very fortunate place to be. Um, I and think at that time, had you shot like all the reenactments you wanted to shoot? Well, yeah, for, I think for the short, like had okay, it been right. a feature, we would mm -hmm. not have been, and that was the, that was right. the idea is that we shot enough of the recreations to create some scenes, but not enough to sustain a whole film. And we had spent about a year searching for archival. So we were at, and like I had done a number of interviews. So we were at a place where it was like, let's have someone come in, reevaluate the situation given the materials we have and see what makes the most sense. And so Francisco came in and was like, you know, I think that you actually do have a really solid short here. And then the whole world flipped upside down. I mean, the whole world flipped upside down and he was like, you have a solid short, we can, we can do this. And we like, and you know, I, you know, we've all gone through our, our experiences at the beginning of COVID, but like we were navigating what felt like the end of the world or whatever it was, ended up being able to work remotely together to create this film, you know? And it was, I mean, I feel, you know, I like, and at that point, like my housing situation fell apart and I moved in with my mom and like, you know, I, I feel as difficult as that was, I feel so grateful that I had somewhere to go and that I had something to focus on. I really, really, really so, so grateful for that, you know? So we just worked on it. And actually that's a, a perfect time to, to go into a edit. <laughs> I mean, who fucking would have, sorry, who would? Yeah, oh, we, we use language here, it's okay. <laughs> who fucking, like, who would have known? And Francisco, you know, had, was like, had talked about setting up the edit so he could edit from home and, you know, and we were like, yeah, we can, we can do that. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, thank gosh, like we were set up and ready to go wow. when everything hit. And, you know, it was just, and it was just about negotiating 
the things that came with it. Like he is a father, he is like, he has like a wife and two kids and like- At home and we're all working from home. Yeah. No, and so it was a real, we were really working through what it meant to, to live in this world together and create. And a number of the things that the young lords brought up during their occupation felt even more pertinent. Some of the demands that they made were higher wages for the healthcare workers. And that is something that we just, at the time, was just like a, a one soundbite that I think needs to be screamed from the rooftops at this point. Something that Iris brought up was childcare. The quote is, childcare is the key to the participation of women. And that's just the line. And that's like, the, that's, that's it. Childcare is the key to the participation of women in the workforce, in life, everywhere. Women were disproportionately affected by COVID in the workplace because they had to go home and take care of their children. I mean, that was like, that still to this day, I was something that I always, I tried to always bring up door-to-door testing. For anything in general, now that COVID, you know, and the people, like older people don't have the same mobility, it's not safe for people to be out together in this moment, we didn't really know what was happening. And then of course, I mean, Felipe in some of the archival brings up women of color's mortality rates when they're giving birth. This has been brought up and obviously been going on for decades. But we heard about Beyonce, Serena Williams. There was a woman that died in Woodhall. I'm just forgetting her name, but while giving birth, a Black woman. And it's like, this is still, these issues are still happening. We were not going to put, I mean, there is an epilogue at the, or there is a, there is a tie-in to 2020. And at the time when, when, we, when, we had, when the film was first conceived, and not even first conceived, when we had been talking about it, it was never, go, we were never going to tie it into the present day because we just felt like it would speak for itself. We, I always knew that it was like an allegory for today, but things were so, I don't even know if the word is illuminated. We were all so exacerbated and like, like everything flipped upside down that I felt, we felt it was irresponsible to mm. not say something, you know, right. we had to. It's like black and Latinx people have died at twice the rate of white New Yorkers. And that is just in New York. You know, this is unacceptable. Healthcare is still these issues that they were talking about now it's like always it was like 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years 70 years ago still it's the same right what are we going to do like what the fuck are we going to do about that how the fuck do we keep living like this how do we keep doing this and i you know and the question is i don't know and the answer is i don't know I don't, yeah, magnified, if you will. Yeah, I mean, so, it's the, the bad version of um, everything old is new again. Everything old has been the same, 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 same. Like it's, you know, it's like, and who have the answers, the people that are most affected by it. And that was also a, a focus and why I focused on this very specific takeover because of the collaboration and the collective action across class and racial lines in the hospital. So you have doctors who were primarily white, not all of them were, but primarily white and upper class. And then you have the young lords who I like identify as representing the community and healthcare workers, and then also the healthcare workers. And they 
everyone came together that day. Not everyone, you know, it's never everyone. You like, you've got to, you've got to know that there are always going to be people that don't want anything to do with it and don't like it. And that's fine. Just know that. <laughs> but the people that I interviewed in the film, in the story, came together and supported each other to let the community lead and do what they needed to do to draw attention to these problems. And that was the biggest thing that I wanted to showcase and why I made this film. I mean, and I love Nate, let the community lead. Let the community lead. The ones that have been doing it forever, give them the money. They'll solve the problems. Like, I'm so, I want to go back to um, the more specifics about the film, particularly the archival, because everybody knows as I, tell, I, I got started in docs with some archival research, and I still do that on the side because I, I just love looking up stuff. Tell me about um, the search for the archival, and particularly um, because you use these archival photos to as a basis for creating your, your recreations. But like, talk about the search for archival, particularly because you said that you were searching for a year. And I think uh, uh, those of us who work in archive know that it can be very difficult to find archival stuff on stories of folks of color. 100%. Because either it could be the case that stuff, things were documented, but they weren't deemed worthy of preservation, you know, and preservation is a key part of like archival. So like talk about your search for the archival and then was it because you did, weren't finding enough archival that you decided to do the recreations? You know, it's really funny. I actually like, and so I actually started Takeover as an undergraduate, like in, in film school. That was my thesis film. And from the jump, I was like, I want it to be structured like a heist. I want there to be recreations. Like, no? And that was like, you know, I love, I mean, I'm a real basic, basic lady. I love action movies. I love things that will like catch my attention, keep it moving. I have a short attention span. Let's like, keep it going, you know? And so I always had that idea and also having been part of an occupation and like, right. and like, I was like, there is some, there is something here. Like this is a movie that I've seen just like it's not people robbing banks. It's people taking over a hospital and demanding healthcare, like, which is real, which is like, what happened? What happened? Right. So for me, that was kind of something I always wanted to do, but I was really, so when I say a year, that was when we like were able to hire researchers. Before that, I had been doing the research myself um, and I found Third World Newsreel. And um, oh, so they have a lot of footage of the young lords oh, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, cool. And so, and I was also studying like non, I mean, I was really beautiful. I'm like, so now that I'm talking about all of this, like, I just feel so lucky that all of this came together because I was also studying like nonfiction film in school. So I learned about the third world newsreel, like filmmakers and what they were doing in the seventies, women and like people of color, women of color documenting their own movements. And so there's feel and a different energy to that material and so that is what I like mimicked slash paid homage to with the recreations you know we just like and the idea was that the camera was a person like and and that's and it moved like a person um and that was kind of what we what myself and uh, my director of photography teenage Lucia had talked about 
like having it move around. So it kind of like zooms in and it's kind of what people do when they're walking into a room, you like look at something, you like kind of focus on something, you look around, you know. So that was, so that was kind of the energy um, and the, the style was mimicking, a, paying homage to the, the third world newsreel filmmakers from that time period. I mean, Rosalie Torres, who, who is, who I've been in touch with for years now because I've been working on this for so long. She has like been so generous and like really helped me do the research. And at that point, you know, now you can't really go in person, but like, you know, I, I went in person and I like got copies and I was, Oh my God, that's so amazing. It was really, it was really beautiful. And like, I think I was able to find, there's a piece from the Associated Press that I was able to find very easily of the outside of the hospital. And then, because the Young Lords documented themselves and El Centro, the Center for Puerto Rican Studies that is part of Hunter College, they have all of the Young Lords uh, newspapers, Palante document. Really? Yeah, and so I went there. So are those like digitized so people can go on the website yeah. to look at those? Yeah. Okay, awesome. That was where I brought together, I was able to find, that is the, the bulk of like my personal research in 2014 or whenever it started uh, was, you know, that AP footage, Third World Newsreel and El Centro's like collection of digitized uh, Palante newspapers. Um, and then, you know, once we were able to afford uh, archival producers and researchers and because of money, I ended up actually archival producing, like finishing doing the licensing, um, but we were able to, you know, I had never, uh, I didn't really know what it was like to reach out to like news stations. And that a bulk of, a bulk of it came from NBC. They had an amazing collection that hadn't been digitized that related specifically that happened to have, you know, the people that I had interviewed protesting about this, you know? That's awesome, that's great. So let me ask you this. So did they, since it hadn't been digitized, I know because some footage houses and stuff hasn't been digitized. Do they require that you pay for the- Absolutely. Uh, I think <laughs> they do that. Because, you know, there is digitized and they can resell it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah of course. But, but yeah. So we spend a lot of money on digit and digitizing fees because, um, you know, had to see it. Um, but some of it was so fruitful. Like you have Cleo Silvers, who's obviously featured in the film, protesting in a park talking about needing a new hospital in 1968 or 1969 you know I mean so it was it was really like really so yeah so that was the archival process and you know I I will say that there is Hiram Maristani right so yes he, the photos yes every time I tell the story I think it gets shorter and shorter we hadn't covered the interviews at that point and then Tony my producer like so the idea I think initially was to just have it be recreations and archival and I was worried myself and Francisco were worried that like there just wasn't enough to sustain it and so we had a second editor come on Sebastian Diaz who's also phenomenal and he like Tony was like you have to at least try for me like you have like you you owe it to me at least try to cover everything up and so like I swear this like three weeks before we were supposed to finish and and then I reached out to Mickey who was the a consulting producer on Takeover who is one of the, the young lords who I've been working with for years. And I was like, okay, Mickey, we, I need you. And I had, I've known about Hiram for years. 
I, I, he is an elusive figure. He'll, he'll tell you he has said it. Everybody thinks he doesn't, he doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't love anybody. He doesn't, you know, nobody uses his, he, nobody, nobody gets his, nobody gets it, you know? And so it was like 12 o'clock last hour. And I was like, Mickey, I need you to reach out to Hiram. Like I, I need, if we're going to try, this is, this is the moment to try. And he reached out to him and then Tony and myself had talked to him. And finally we were like able to get him to watch the film. Oh, wow. He watched it and handed over his entire collection of photos. It was, oh my goodness, like it changed. I mean, obviously it changed the entire film. It mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. so beautiful because of his, he's not just the young lords. I mean, like he's not just the photographer, but he's their photographer. He is a phenomenal photographer. So you have photos that are just absolutely perfect. And he gave us access to his contact sheets. I mean, just, you can't, I mean, you, so you have my mom scanning them at night. I am bringing them in and resizing them for the editor in the day. We're going through it. We're throwing them in. We have like, we, I mean, I'm like totally like nerding out right now. We are, we are crazy. (laughs) I mean, the camera moving like this. If you can't see me, like I, my hands are just going everywhere. Like, right. Topsy turvy. We're like zooming in, zooming out. And it was like, I remember, I think it was like Tony and Lynn, Lynn Nottish specifically was like, the camera movement needs to be motivated. Like you can't just be moving around. (laughs) There must be a purpose. Yeah, exactly. And so we were like, we just gotten so excited that we had all these photos, do all these moves. And so we had to like dial. And I do remember watching it down once and being like, I feel sick. Like, I don't know what we just did. We like created a boat ride, you know? Right. (laughs) So like Sebastian, I had to really like dial it down, but it like, it just changed I mean like and it you know down to the wire you know Mm -hmm. his photos are beautiful and like I always say that like Hiram is the only lord who stays young like throughout the whole film everyone else like you know at the end we see his photo from when he was like believe it was like 30 years old and we like celebrate and thank him for his contribution because without his without his photos the film would not be what it is hands down not not at all you know and so I just honoring him and his work and like you know he was also like the, uh, one of the directors of like the breakfast program so like not, he wasn't just you know not that anybody is anything but he was not just the photographer not just a young lord not just a father not just had a full-time job also ran the breakfast program which started at 5 a.m every day you know? I feel so grateful like I am like, this is like the biggest honor. And I'm seeing this, say this until the end of time. This has like been the greatest honor to work on this film. And I am so grateful to those that like, so many people made it happen, but also like your tenacity, you know, (laughs) I'm so glad you stuck with it. Yeah. Because I have to say like, when I first met you, I was kind of felt like how like down you were. And I was like, so excited. I'm like, oh my God, like she has to do this. She has to do this. She has to know this. <laughs> you really, I, and, I don't it get really, and I think, and it's, and you know, I think it's really important to like say that, even though you never want to, like I, we, we met at a point where I was like, 
I think I was, you know, you, you've got it. I was feeling really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought you were on the, and I've talked to many, I mean, I think, I think every filmmaker has their moment like, like this where, but I feel like you were about to just like, I'm just going to hang this up. <laughs> I, you know, I don't like it. It really, I don't know. I think, I think it was like, like Tony had brought up the idea of making it a short and like, maybe that's what we need to do. And I think that I right. was coming to terms and you know, it's, and I, I do. Cause so, yeah, cause you have your, your vision of it, what you want it to be. Well, it's and also then, like how, who works on a film for 10 years and it's a short and that's just an ego thing. And I just want to be real <laughs> about that. You know, that's just an ego thing. And so it was right. coming to terms with that too. Like, like, you know, you hear of all these stories of I worked on it for four years, seven years, 10 years, and here's my feature or whatever. And it's like, and like, I think that I was, I think what I was really coming to terms with and was like that, the ego of like, maybe this is going to be a feature. And like, at the same time, like, I don't, I mean, I obviously watch features, but like, I also like, I think short form does work better for like my attention span too. So it's like, what's better for the film, better for me, better for whatever. But I think that you, I mean, I, yeah, I think I was really reckoning with the reality that I might never raise the money to make this thing. And like, right. That look like, what does a short mean? And, and like, also, I um, you know, I think it's only, I would say recently with the past three years or so that shorts have been like getting a lot more love, you know? And um, because I mean, I know when I started in docs, like I've been in, working in docs since what 2011, um, there was like virtually no funding for for shorts, and now there's like they're more funding, like they're pitching events for for people working on shorts. So I mean, so and you, I think you were kind of like in that transition period, you know? Totally. Yeah. No, and I mean, I'm so lucky that the funders that did support us were okay with us turning it into a short. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's also like where I, you know, that's something that we haven't even like really talked about. No one even brought it up. We were just like, this is kind of where we are and what where we think we mm -hmm. need to go. Um, and, and maybe the fact that let like, COVID happen, um, you know, I think a lot more um, funders were um, more generous about being more flexible about their their guidelines. That's you a know. really good point. Yeah, I didn't even think about that honestly. I think that also like you know for and you know it's it's like your ego as like an artist or a filmmaker or whatever, but reconciling with what you want to do. And it's like ultimately, I want I wanted people to watch this and I wanted like kids to see it and like be have it be used as an organizing tool what is like 40 minutes is a great period of time that's like a that's a that's a class that's a class right you can watch that in a class one you know um like that's a a short seminar with like a talk back like that's you know so there it's actually real a great time like a length of time for what I wanted to do with takeover, you know? And so I think that's like, you know, I'm, I'm, so I think it all came together the way, you know, who, you know, I don't want to be like too, like it came together the way it was supposed to, you know? You know, it's just like, it worked, it worked out. Like it really worked out for what, for like what I, what, you know, our goals were with the film. And we are just like, so blessed that like 
people are responding the way they are to it. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's. I, now, speaking of responding, um, there's that little thing about the the Oscar shortlist. <laughs> I mean, it's. <laughs> I don't even. You know who I. <laughs> I like. Oh. And ultimately, it just means that more people are going to know. Oh, see the film. Yeah. And what they did. Right. And so, like, that's like, it's just. So, let me ask you this because people will have this question. Um, Are you, like, are are you and your production company, like, doing any, like, kind of like formal Oscar campaign? You know, this time of year, there are all these for your consideration because it's award season. It's award season. Right. And essentially, Running an Oscar campaign can or is like can be very <laughs> pricey. It can be very expensive, and most people, particularly for a feature, um, they will actually bring on a, a publicist to help them with that. With like, uh, and usually a good one of the top Oscar-ish publicists to retain them is like a hundred thousand dollars just to retain them. So it could be it could be really crazy expensive. But anyway, just talk about like what you're doing for your campaign. Yeah, so um, so I will say like we are a small but mighty team, right? Like we do not have that type of money. I'm just gonna be real. I mean, you can read about it. You're you hit the nail on the head. Like people are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on their campaigns. We don't have that. Um, it's just the reality of the situation. Like we. Uh, we are super, I mean, so we premiered at Tribeca in 2021, which was like massive. Um, we were acquired by the New York Times uh, as an op doc. So that is also massive and such an honor, like New York Times, amazing young lords, changing healthcare on the New York Times website. Amazing. We're in great company. Like there are, op docs has, you know, that runs a mate they choose really phenomenal films the films that were chosen this year and that were also in the running were like all beautiful i think they saw the film at uh, tribeca and were interested and that was that was amazing and so you know i've i've been watching opdocs tony my producer like we love opdocs so it's it really an honor to have them reach out and want to partner and support us um you know it's been it's been difficult because of the lack of resources, but also COVID. So we can't have in-person screenings, but we've also been having a lot of, I mean, the thing also about OpDocs is that it is free to watch. And that was a really, really big thing for us is that like this story can't be behind a paywall. Like it just, it has to go, it has to be there. And, you know, OpDocs also has a page on YouTube and we were able to have Spanish uh, subtitles on it. So those two came out the same day, which was like, which was really, really important. So that has been like, just in terms of accessibility of like being able to see the story and like hear about it, like that has been phenomenal. And OpDocs are an amazing team to work with and they are super supportive um, and very flexible. Uh, That being said, you know, we are, like a small, like I said, a small but mighty team. We are relying on on our like, you know, activists rely on their community. So I like tapping into like my friends who I used to organize with. You know, we are reaching out to people that, that we think the film would resonate with. People that have been close to us. Like we are really running a very low budget Oscar campaign. We are so lucky working 
with Adam Siegel, who's like an amazing publicist. And this is kind of how it's felt a lot. Like we have been up against really big films, big studios, big people, but like the story is timely. I think we did a, a phenomenal job. We have the support of the Young Lords. Like that is in and of itself, that has been the greatest, I don't know if the word honor or whatever it is, just, just knowing that they, that the film speaks to them individually and collectively, right? Cause that's like, you. I mean, and that's just six people that I have in the film. We're not even talking about the other people who are in the organization, right? But like it has spoken to most everyone that I have met in a way that is so soul affirming that I, I, I can't, I have no words. So that, and I think that's the most in, important thing too. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people know I do, I've, I've, in the past, I've done um, impact work with Ani Mercedes and her company, Looky Looky Pictures. And one of the, I'm probably going to misquote her, but one of the things that um, it's kind of like at the heart of like her, that organization's mission is that the people who are on um, the screen, who see themselves on the screen, feel loved, valued, appreciated, and heard. Mm. And seen. Yeah. So, Yeah. And, you know, and like the fact that you have the sign off of like the people who are, who are part of this movement, like, like I mean, that's probably the, the greatest thing. Yeah. Ever. Like it's, I, I think that she, um, both of you nailed it. Like that's, that I think is the, the heart of the film is that like the people who were mm -hmm. interviewed there and like participated, like feel exactly what you just said and that so we're relying a lot on that like a lot on like the support right. I mean Cleo Silvers like she I, I always joke I mean like she always shows up she is a hardcore organizer till the end and she always shows up she is always down <laughs> to like give an interview talk to a group of people you know and like this is just another vehicle to share her history her knowledge I mean as well as the other lords mm -hmm. like, you know I'm just using her as an example but um right like they they have so much to share with us and this is just the like this is just a way for me that I felt to like amplify their voices and like have a way to like share their experiences and it's like well we can't do in-person screenings we can do virtual um panels and like that actually reaches out to more people in many ways like you can so and you know and that's and i think that's been like the the in uh, not that there's any silver lining to living through a pandemic because like it's been horrible in so many things more like knowledge has become a little bit more accessible because you and I can have a conversation and 20 other people can just show up into the Zoom room and be there, you know, and like very easily. So mobility and like place, literal location do not interfere with the sharing of knowledge. And I think that that we have learned 
that we can do through this, which I think is a, a benefit in some ways. Well, I, I know it can be hard during like the pandemic and, you know, we have this surge, you know, um, you know Omicron and then I've read somewhere about how uh, COVID is mixing with the flu. So, you know, Miss Rona and Mr. Flu are having babies, you know, out here. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. But um, are you like for the, for the film, like, cause you said you want this to be like a how-to, like a how-to take over. Um, do you have, are you, is there any kind of like formal impact campaign, like with like grassroots screenings? And again, I can that could be difficult because of you know the 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 circumstances that we're living under now, particularly because like healthcare is like such a uh, is so relevant <laughs> in so many ways now. Like <laughs> like we're all we're all thinking and talking about it, even those. Novas who felt maybe felt like they didn't really have the um, didn't necessarily have to think about it, you know. So we when we first uh, premiered at Tribeca, and then we had we started having some community screenings in the summer until we okay. didn't feel like we could. The first place we screened at was the People's Church, which is the uh, church the Young Lords took over in 1969 to demand it be used as a space for community. Act is not even activism necessarily, just community organizing. You know, when they took over the church, they provided food. That was where like the breakfast program, you know, their breakfast program was implemented, clothing exchange, you know, things like that. It it carries on that message to this day. And so the pastor and I have like we we are we are close and you know, she has been, we interviewed Felipe Luciano there over the summer. Um, a I mean a couple summers ago, obviously. But yeah, I mean, so we have like that, and that was the first like community screening we had. It was, there was this moment where the footage of them taking over the church was on the screen while we were in the church watching the film. And it was like just this, it was, you know, I was like, and most people in that room could speak to it. It was out of this world. It was beautiful. And so we've been holding community screenings. We've uh, screened at Mount Sinai virtually. Um, we screened with NISNA, the New York uh, State Nurses Association. You know, we are in the process of, so I've been really fortunate to work with Nada Martinez of Decade of Fire as a consulting strategist and we're in the process of you know beginning to talk about creating a curriculum and an impact including some of the lords to like have them help us create it because who better to so that's so that is like the next that is like in process um so it's just a matter of like trying to get the funding and you know all all of that jazz, but that is in process as we speak. You know we've got we've got our hands in a lot of different pots and honestly like without the amazing skills of my producing team, Tony Gerber, I mean Lynn Edge, obviously, um, the two of them having been so supportive, Luis Miranda and uh, Laura Calalori who works at Market Road Films. Like we have, like I said, with small but mighty team, right? Like we have like all of the heart and the love in the world and we have persistence, you know, we're just like chugging along and we are like just 
you know, I'm grateful to be here. Hope we can continue on. Like, you know, we're, we are doing the best, the most that we can given the resources and like what we have to work with, you know, and it is, you know, we're like, we can't rent every $4,500 theater or news blast, e-blast that possibly comes our way. And that's just the reality of it. No, because I mean, there's also conversations about spending that type of money anyway, right? Like, this is where you want to put your resources to considering the nature of this film and what it's about. You, you're trying to balance. I mean, I think POV or ITVS like said that they, you know, most of the time they, they want to put the, the money into like funding the impact campaign, right? Because like that's their energy is and it's like a fine balance because you know the more notoriety the film gets the more people see it and hear about it so you and then the more you can you know turn that into a, a, a bigger impact campaign so it is it is a, it's definitely like a balance right and it is a dance that we are navigating like and we're trying to do thoughtfully, intentionally, the ultimate goal that all of us had with this film is to like raise awareness of the young lords, the importance of healthcare, their contribution to healthcare, the United States, all of our lives, <laughs> and do it in a way that was appealing and accessible and exciting for young people to, to tap into, right? That's been like the goal from the from the get so yeah so that you know but it like like I said it's a fine line and we are dancing we are we are dancing it and we are trying to be considered we are for your consideration wow like really wanting to like create a curriculum around like activism and healthcare, um the importance of universal accessible quality health care like all, all these things so it's it's definitely where, you know, I think independent filmmakers are always dancing some sort of line. It is, we're always trying our best with very few resources. And like, I hope, like, I think most of our hearts are in the right place. Like, you know, we're, but it is, it is what it is. You know? We do what we can and we just, fingers crossed. I tell everyone I know, light every candle ever. <laughs> Everyone would like light every candle ever, tell everyone you know, post on social media and like, you know, like please. And that's that's where we're at, you know. You never know. Like you never know. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we always like to give our guests um the last word. Um, so um, do you have any final thoughts as part of your final thoughts? Like, tell us where people can see the film and the website and all your social media. So include all that. And also the last word could be like, if there's something we hadn't like talked about today that you wanted to express. No, I think this was a phenomenal interview. Thank you so much for having me here, Tony. And like, honestly, for being so supportive. Like, I really, like, I remember, I mean, we, we've been in touch since and like, you know, COVID hit and like the world turned upside down and we hadn't talked as much, but like, you have always been a supporter. You actually have, and have always been super encouraging. And I think I felt comfortable enough 
ethics guide to be honest with you about my feelings of discouragement, but I always count you as someone that has championed like me and takeover to me, which is something that's important because you need people like that to like help fuel your little fire because it's hard to keep going when not many people think that, you know, when you're not getting funding or whatever. So like I, that's, so thank you for being a supporter and champion of filmmakers and specifically me and Takeover. You can catch us at Takeover the Film on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Danny DeVito tweeted about Takeover. Just FYI. You can watch us on the OpDocs website, Takeover the Film, Young Lords, YouTube, Vimeo. I mean, we are like very, like you can watch it on a number of platforms and we are happy if you do anywhere tell your friends, watch the film, post about it on social media. We are appreciative of all of it. It was great to catch up with Emma and learn so much about this phenomenal film. Emma's story is truly a lesson on learning to be open to feedback and understanding when it might be time to shift one's expectations for one's work. The young lords are getting their flowers and passing on their knowledge on how to create successful resistance movements. At the end of Alice Walker's book, Possessing the Secret of Joy, she writes, resistance is the secret of joy. And takeover embodies that. So how will you take over in your own life and your own activism? Think about how you have benefited from the struggles of those who have come before you and do your part to pay it forward for the generations to come. And for our listeners who are members of the Academy, voting open this week, so make sure you watch the film. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Next week, we'll be in Los Angeles as I chat with filmmaker and fellow Bad West member, Jaquil Constant, the executive director of the Haiti International Film Festival. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's what's up wdocs.com and make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news and remember to support our podcast by clicking on our paypal link on our website you can find us on facebook and instagram at what's up wdocs again that's what's up wdocs and remember keep telling your stories today's episode was hosted by tony bell and produced by renell schubert music is by sierra thomas the What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.